Josh Dyes, frontman and lead vocalist for the band Showbread, is here with us. Josh, thanks for joining The Antidote. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to start back at the very basics of Showbread. Can you explain the word Showbread and how it came to be chosen as the name of your band? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was 14 when the band started. It was almost 15 years ago now. My older brother started the band and invited me to join it. And at the time, it was as silly as I think they were flipping around in a concordance or or some kind of biblical glossary and thought that it was a funny word or a a fun thing to call a band. And uh, as our story kind of began to unravel that same year, our origin was kind of marked by this interesting debacle in uh, southeast Georgia in the the U.S. and Southern Baptist Church, and we were kind of doing an unconventional thing and ended up being asked to leave the church. And at that point, uh, we decided to do a band for real, because before then it was kind of just a hobbyist type of thing. And we were going to change the name of the band, but someone was reading in uh, the Gospels at that time of this story when uh, Jesus actually used the example of uh, showbread, which was this like consecrated bread that they kept in the temple um, pre-Jesus or during his time. And the, he used it as this example of kind of speak out against traditionalism over compassion or um, you know, the traditionalism over doing what was right. And we kind of related to that because of uh, what had happened to us. And uh, we decided that we would keep the name around. So now it's like a blessing and a curse because it did end up getting retroactively imbued with meaning, but it is very silly sounding. So it keeps us humble. So it works both ways. Yeah, that's right. You brought up about your early days. Now, I was told that you guys were still in diapers when the band uh, started, but I guess that's not true if you were 14. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some would call 14 diapers. I know for me, it was might as well have had diapers on. Once it gets past my age, they start calling them uh, Depends. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the way there myself. Okay, you talked about being controversial. Showbread, I guess, at times has been considered controversial. I think that early on, we were we had you know one foot in the Christian music industry and one foot in the uh, secular music industry, and we felt and do feel called more so to the non-Christian realm of the arts and the music industry because Showbread exists uh, for the sole purpose of telling people about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, why we've decided to follow Jesus, the you know the news that we think Jesus is king of the world, that he's back from the dead, all those things, and uh, to kind of preach to the choir and tell people that already know about that uh, constantly is a, a tad self-defeating for our, our mission statement. So we, we do exist, you know, playing in churches and in the Christian music industry and all that stuff, and we do speak to uh, the church in the statements that we make as well, but our, more so our calling is to people that are not following Jesus yet. So we kind of decided early on when we realized the way that the Christian music industry uh, operates at times, there can be this expectation for cleanliness where, you know, you don't you don't talk about this and you don't go this way. And if you, you know, you don't put this on the cover of your record and things like that, uh, this is just the way the industry works. We uh, had to decide pretty quickly, like, well, will we cater to this or will we just do what we think is best for our, uh, you know, our mission statement, our purpose, what we think is most effective to communicate what we want to communicate. And we decided the latter, that we would do what we felt was best, what we felt like Jesus wanted us to do. And if, you know, people 
were going to be upset with that on either end of the spectrum, then it would be sort of worthwhile as long as we felt like we were doing what we, you know, like needed to do. Um, and I guess for that reason, certain things, you know, whether it be lyrics or imagery or content have come under a bit of scrutiny here and there throughout the career. And it's this really funny balancing act because um, in a lot of ways, we're, we're too preachy for the, you know, the, the straightforward secular industry because we talk about Jesus so much. But then we're also a little bit too zany for the, uh, for the straightforward Christian industry because we don't shy away from you know, like certain topics and things like that. So some people don't know what to do with this whole thing. But you opted out of the three-piece church Christianity we did. Well, you know, like, I think at the beginning of the story, uh, we were super young, and it was like, let's, you know, fight back against this traditionalism and fight back against, you know, what was, we felt the way that we had been treated. But we actually have no animosity toward the church. We're all, would prefer uh, unity and all kinds of different various expressions of the church to be able to come together and unite, even with conventional, unconventional, traditional, non-traditional, all that kind of thing. We just will not cater to certain expectations if we feel like they violate our mission statement, if that makes any sense. Obviously, in the past, you'd included reference to horror movies in a number of your songs. Welcome to Plainfield Toby Hooper, you know, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame, and George Romero will be at our wedding, who, of right. course, was director of Night of the Living Dead, and the title from the movie Dead by Dawn. Is this like a horror movie obsession that was coming into your songs? A little bit. Myself and a couple of the other guys in the band kind of grew up on horror cinema in a way, and it was, not to sound too cliche or pretentious about it, but it was inspirational to us in a sense because there's a, especially in the horror genre of movie making, this very strong sense of do-it-yourself, low budget, get the job done, and, and you can still make this grandiose vision come to life. A lot of the influential horror movies of the 70s and 80s, you know, or even the late 60s, Night of the Living Dead, or Halloween, you know, Friday the 13th, all those kind of things were these movies that were made by people who weren't qualified to make movies, or who didn't have enough money to make movies, and who did it anyway. And that was really influential to me uh, as a teenager that was like, wow, these guys, they didn't care about uh, a Hollywood system, or they didn't care about um, being educated in filmmaking or anything. They just went and did it. And to me, that was kind of like the punk rock version of movie making. And I thought that that was really cool. And that inspired me as a, as a musician and as an artist. So there was a lot of residual influence in that that was kind of working its way into the lyrics with the first couple of records. But we thought it would be interesting to take those concepts and kind of pin this theological undercurrent uh, beneath them with songs like, you know, Welcome to Plainfield, Toby Hooper, which is really about like the dynamic of how a Jesus following person ingests art. Is it okay to look at something that people think is offensive? Is it, you know, like how should a Christian relate to the art? And, you know, we dress it up in really abstract, funny ways and then pin a, a silly sounding song title on it with Toby Hooper's name in it. But uh, it's just a way of putting all these fun pieces together. Well, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot and ask, what's your favorite horror movie of all time? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I would say it would either be Day of the Dead, which is the third in the in the George Romero Dead series, or maybe The Fly, the uh, 1984, 89 version of uh, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. I like those. Yeah, David Cronenberg. Yeah, that's yeah, right. A Canadian himself. Well, here's the weird deal. I filmed a movie here a couple of years back. I got to be an extra no, you didn't. Yeah. 
So you actually get to meet and shoot the breeze with David Cronenberg, who actually looks like a corpse, but he's really quite friendly. <laughs> he is actually pretty gangly. That's awesome. Yeah, but my big scene with Viggo Mortensen ended up on the cutting room floor, so I can't say I'm a fan. <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's really crazy. Yeah, that's way off topic. But yeah, in a town of 1,500 people, and they shoot movies here quite regularly. Man, that's bizarre. So was that, uh, what, Eastern Promises or A History of Violence? A History of Violence. Wow, that's really cool. wasn't a very good movie, though. What did you think? Uh, it was a tad on the disappointing side to me as a Cronenberg fan, because I like some of his more sci-fi and, and horror stuff, but he's free to branch out. Go ahead, Cronenberg, do your thing. Critics liked it, but I thought it was a really chopped up movie, personally. Yeah, it's pretty strange. Yeah, I haven't seen it past the initial viewing. Maybe I should give it another chance. Showbread has had Reese Roper of Five Iron Frenzy as a guest vocalist on a number of songs over the years. Tell us how you hooked up with Reese. Well, a bunch of us, when we were doing the first record, were huge Five Iron fans, huge Brave St. Saturn fans, and uh, Brave St. Saturn, Reese's you know, other band, was on Tooth & Nail when Showbread first signed to Tooth & Nail Records. So one of the first things we did was call our A&R guy and ask him if he could get us Reese's email address so we could ask him to come sing on our first record with Tooth & Nail. We thought it, you know, like it's a shot in the dark, not like Reese would be above it or anything, but, you know, people have busy schedules. We shot him an email and asked him if he'd be willing to come out to California and sing on a song on our first album. And he was extremely gracious and kind and said, absolutely. He was recording, uh, I believe it was um, his little solo effort, uh, Roper's first record and at the same time. So he just drove like a rental car, like two hours into North Northern California, um, was there for one day, a song he had never heard before, lyrics he had never read before, and just like in a few takes, knocked it out of the park. And we had a ton of fun working on it together and became friends. Uh, we toured with Roper, you know, invited him to collaborate with us some more on different things. And yeah, it was just one of those really unique times when a, one of your heroes turns out to be a heck of a nice fellow and you get along swimmingly. I want to put you on the spot. Can we run through your discography and you give a brief synopsis on each of the albums? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Okay. You brought out your first studio album, No Sir, Nihilism is Not Practical, in 2004. Your thoughts right. on it? Uh, well, Nihilism is the fan favorite record. Uh, at the time, we were extremely influenced by a Swedish punk band called Refused, and that record reflects that really strongly, I think. The fans say that it's spastic and chaotic and all those things that they really liked at the time. I think it's great. I love that record. To me, now looking back at it, I can see that it was a uh, like lightning in a bottle type of thing where we didn't really know what we were doing yet. We had never had a really pleasant studio experience. And we went out to work with uh, this mega producer, Sylvia Massey and uh, Rich Feltrop and instantly had this incredible collaborative spirit and we were experimenting in the studio and trying all kinds of different things and they totally understood the record that we wanted to make even though we didn't really understand. Despite us not knowing anything, that record came out incredibly. So I think I, I like it. I, I get a little uh, frustrated throughout the years when fans hold it up as the paradigm of a showbread record, but you know, that's to be expected, I guess. Always happens with the number one. You set the standard. Yeah, exactly. Now, number two was Age of Reptiles in 2006, but you guys had expressed some disappointment as a band with that album. 
Yeah, well, it's such a bizarre experience because the first record did really well and the record label was really happy with it. And we had demoed a few songs that we were, were going to end up on Age of Reptiles. And those songs are all on the record and they were leaning more towards uh, you know, a palatable record compared to the first one, which was really jarring and crazy and spastic. And Tooth & Nail's parent label, EMI, had heard songs on nihilism like Mouth Like a Magazine and, and thought that there was a lot of potential for radio play and, you know, like mainstream success. But the record was just too crazy to really market it based on that one single. So they were like, I wish we had a, you know, a record full of singles. And we honestly weren't writing because of that, but it happened to go that way. Um, that record was more, you know, influenced by the bands that we were really into when we were teenagers, you know, Nirvana and uh, Weezer, alternative bands in the 90s, R.E.M., mm -hmm. stuff like that. And uh, So the songs were coming out really catchy and the label was excited. And so a ton of money went into that record and a ton of time went into recording it. And it ended up being like the uh, the sophomore a slump as far as us getting along and collaborating. There was a ton of argument and deliberation over what the record should be like and Parts of the, the finished product reflect that tension, I think, in a way. Even so, by the grace of God, I'm extremely happy with the album that you put in and listen to. I think that it's one of the catchiest things we ever did. It, it has like a listening power that holds up over time. It doesn't like wear out in my own personal estimation. And that's, you know, that's my gauge by the success of a record. What matters most to me is if I'm satisfied with it. And I am like I, I like the record. It's just the experience that orbits around the finished product that's really like, in some ways, unpleasant. But we also managed to have fun. So it's just it was a very uh, tumultuous time. It was a lot of turmoil, like circling that album. Well, in two thousand and eight, you guys made a major change. You went to the twin concept albums, Anorexia Nervosa. Yeah, that was quite a step. Yeah, it was something. All right, that was quite an undertaking. I think that doing Age of Reptiles, which was extremely succinct, you know, 10 tracks, you know, three and a half minute structures, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, you know, the, the standard pop song mm -hmm. thing right. left us kind of like, well, that was great and that was fun and we did it. Uh, let's not do that again. Let's do something that's really complicated and difficult that would challenge us. That ended up being the <laughs> anorexia nervosa. The challenge was um, writing a story that we would then have to write a soundtrack to. So we, we were holed up in this rehearsal space in California for, you know, like a month with uh, everyone with the story and notepads and their pens. And we'd say like, okay, now during this, you know, these three sentences, the song needs to sound like this. And we would take the demos that I had been writing and try to rework them and be like, well, no, it has to change, you know, at least 30 seconds later, because then this happens in the story. It was such an incredible amount of work <laughs> to make that thing line up the way that we wanted it to. And we at that time were like, well, I don't even know how you frame this uh, musically. And we ended up deciding that the best way would be with a kind of super dark, ominous, industrial influenced sound more in the you know in the line of something like nine inch nails or the cure or something like that and that became anorexia nervosa and the original idea was to have you know it kept like morphing into something bigger because we weren't thinking about how hard it was going to be the original idea was just to have like 10 songs and every other song would be you know a different character then it was like well what if we split it into two records and then one record could be one character and the second could be the other one 
And we were going to package that together and make, you know, a video for every song and all that kind of stuff. And Tooth and Nail, um, who was totally uh, supportive and willing to work with us, but trying to get us to wrangle the thing under control, were like, well, you know. And they came up with the idea of two actually separate albums that would be released on the same day and everything. So, man, when that was done, it was quite a sigh of relief. Time for a vacation after that one? Yeah, there was time for not even thinking about songwriting for a long time. (laughs) 2009 came along, and you guys pulled out The Fear of God. Yeah, The Fear of God. I really love that album. I love the experience. We, We recorded it completely different than all the other ones. The album was recorded almost entirely live in a room with everyone playing together at the same time. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it was it was such a blast. We had gone through the first, you know, couple of big member changes and we realized we were left with this band that um the remaining members had always had this kind of vision to do a really unrefined, you know, punk energy album that we would record live and really capture the essence of uh kind of what showbread did on tour in an album before we had members who weren't really into that but then when we realized it was just us we were like well now's time to do that record we always wanted to do so to me the fear of god um i kind of think of it as the end of a trilogy that would be you know no certain is not practical age of reptiles and then the fear of god and anorexia nervosa just exists in its own world over there somewhere but uh the fear of god to me really sums up those other two records. It combines the sound and kind of presents them in in a way that that we had been doing on the road for all those years. So I'm really happy with that record. Then you decided to go with Come and Live. That's right, yeah. A new label during 2010, and Mm -hmm. you brought out Who Can Know It. Yeah, and uh, so when we were releasing The Fear of God, uh, our contract with Tooth & Nail was all done, and... uh, our A&R representative at Tooth & Nail, a dude named Chad Johnson, had left the label to go and start a nonprofit organization called Come and Live, and he had this really wacky idea to get a bunch of bands that really love Jesus and get them to release music for free. <laughs> and us being the uh, strange people that we are, we said immediately, like, oh, yeah, we'll come with you. We'll do that. So um, we went straight to come and live and had you know another few member changes and at that time we're like well you know it's a different direction it's a different label we have different members we really wanted to go farther in a different direction than we ever had before because the showbread motto is kind of like never make the same record twice and we want to kind of shock the audience every single time with how big a departure we can do with every record and we said with this one let's do like the ultimate departure let's what can we do that will, you know, immediately, as soon as you start hearing it, you'll be like, this doesn't even sound like the same band, which is the, you know, the effect that we wanted. And we decided that would be, you know, one, no screaming, no like yelling, no traditional power chord rock songs, and just tons and tons of uh, instrumentation. You know, there's xylophones and pianos and horns and stringed instruments, all kinds of crazy things. And that became Who Can Know It, uh, which it <laughs> certainly pulled off what we were hoping, which would be really jarring to the audience. Um, but we had anticipated that. And, you know, we think that's kind of the fun of it, is if, if you can't have people really reacting to the record each time, good or bad, um, then, you know, it's, it kind of becomes boring, and we, we don't want the complacency in the audience. So, yeah, that was a ton of fun. It was really difficult to force ourselves to write differently, um, but I, I think that we pulled it off. Back in 2007, you had said, 
the average listener doesn't want to be taken on an adventure through all sorts of different lands. When it comes to music, they like to get comfortable and stay comfortable. What about today? Do you still want to keep your fans uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's two ways of looking at you know our approach to music and art and all that thing, because our bottom line has always been that we're going to make the record that we want to make and that we feel led to make. Um, it's not going to affect us. The audience's expectations will not be imposed on us to the point that it will change our direction. And we feel like the reason is it's not like an insensitivity towards the people who actually enjoy our music. We feel like the people who like us appreciate us for that reason, that um, there's this true creative spirit, for better or for worse. And and at times, people would certainly say it's for worse, but that we're going to make the record that we want to make. And I think a lot of people have, you know, and it's it's a totally fair uh, suspicion, but have kind of read into that, that like, oh, these guys are so arrogant and they're pretentious and they just they like get some kind of bizarre pleasure out of alienating their fans. And they think that they're, you know, like, uh, we're so punk rock, we don't even want people to like our own band. (laughs) But it's really not that at all. I think that there's something really fun and challenging about having a record that you can completely anticipate that it's it's entirely possible and maybe even likely that 50% of our listeners will hear this and it'll be too much for them. But I want to be able to look back at our discography and say, like, good grief, like, one record can't really be compared effectively to the other record because it's almost not even the same genre. And uh, I like this effect of, oh, this band has a new record coming out. I want to hear it, not not just because I like the band, but because I have no idea what it might sound like. Like, um, there's bands that have a model that they stick to record to record to record, and it totally works. Like, you know... ACDC is always going to sound like ACDC and they're never going to break formula and that's the thing that works for them and I wouldn't expect it any differently but then there are other bands and and I'd like to think that we're one of them that's like there's there's absolutely no telling what the next record might sound like and that's kind of the fun of it whether you like it or hate it there's no way to accurately predict (laughs) what it might sound like. No, that's one thing that I've always got to agree with with Showbread every time this is not a cookie cutter album. And I know I've heard some comments, you know, people, oh, I like this, I don't like that. I guess I'm one of those that actually like all of it. I have all of the albums, and I almost equally enjoy all of them. Well, then, see, you're the the open-minded individual. (laughs) It's not to say that people that don't like one record versus the other one are closed-minded, per se. There's plenty of bands that I really appreciate that, that do the different album to different album thing. And every now and then there's a record that's like, eh, this one's not really my thing. That's totally fine, but I would have it no other way. I like you know the the diversity. I like the change up, and there's always going to be folks like yourself or folks like me that happen to end up liking all of the record, even you know as far as it dips in one direction or the other. But that's the fun of it, you know. Of course, that's one thing that fits in very well. What you've been doing with your music is how it ties into what we do on the Antidote, where we play everything from metalcore to indie folk. Right, and yeah. really, what the focus is, is this a true artist, or is this somebody trying to sound like somebody else in the market? Yeah, and that's a tough question, I think, for a lot of bands to ask themselves, or a lot of artists to ask themselves, because it's really easy to like kind of subconsciously fall into the category of like, well, wait a minute, like, are we doing this because this is what we want to do, or are we doing this because we're worried what people will think, or whether or not they'll like it, or... 
you know, at the end of the day, like I would like to be able to go to bed at night knowing that I made the record that I wanted to make because I believed in it. I feel like that's what Jesus wanted me to do. I feel like, you know, like was true to my quote unquote artistic convictions, as silly as that sounds. And not because, you know, well, I was worried whether or not people would like it. Like at the end of the day, even if everyone hates the record, if I made the record that I love, then I at least know that not to use the cliche, but didn't sell out in a sense or didn't bow to the whims of listeners. Because if we continue to do that, then, you know, no one's ever going to get any kind of honest art. And that's what uh, a lot of people appreciate is what they can actually perceive as honesty and in the, the, the art that they appreciate. Since you released the album on Come and Live and it was just available as a free download, you also did a whole tour of free concerts how do you put gas in the van and how do you pay for your macaroni and cheese when you're offering everything for free? Oh man. Uh, well, in one sense you don't, <laughs> uh, there were two perceived things about the way that we, the, you know, the free model, um, that we kind of embarked on with come and live. And one was that like, well, this is the way the industry's heading. You know, you have everyone from, Radiohead to Trent Reznor doing the free record thing as a way to try to figure out what's going to work in the, you know, in the wake of the crumbling music industry. Certain people were like, oh, come and live is a, another business model or it's another uh, way of trying to figure out what's going to work when the music industry is, is all the way dead, which it seems like it's heading that way. And another thing was like, they think that the most ethical thing is to give music away for free. And the, in actuality, it was neither of the two. Uh, it certainly wasn't a business model by any means because we're not the caliber of band that can give away the record for free and then count on, you know, a tour to fund itself, which is, I think, strategic for certain bands of the size of like Radiohead or something. And even if that was our approach, we did the tour for free, too. So that wouldn't have worked. But it certainly wasn't the other way either that like we think, oh, my gosh, the, if you're you know following Jesus or if you have this kind of moral structure, then you should be giving away things for free because that's not the case at all. It actually takes tens of thousands of dollars to make a record. It takes um, tens of thousands of dollars to fund a tour and, you know, absolutely no greed whatsoever. You just literally cannot make a record without money. You cannot go on tour without money. For some bizarre reason, in the wake of the crumbling music industry and piracy, illegal downloading, all that stuff, there's this bizarre sense of entitlement with music consumers and that they think that music is owed to them. And with no other media, um, do people expect that it should be given them to them for free? People don't expect that they should be able to walk into a movie theater and say like, well, no, you should give this to me. Why in the world would I pay for this? Or, you know, walk into Barnes & Noble and say like, why in the world would I pay for this book? It's owed to me. It should be given to me. But that's the approach that a lot of listeners have to music. And they think like, oh my gosh, these people are so greedy that they're mad about you know illegal downloading and stuff. So we understand that it actually takes money to make music. It takes money to go on tour. It wasn't like a moral standard or anything. The, the idea was if we treat our listeners with generosity, then generosity will be reciprocated. And that model actually was successful in giving the record away for free. And we did the tour for free. But we told people, you know, the tour is completely for free. And we mean what we say when it's for free. We're not expecting anything from you guys. If for some reason you feel inclined, we have a box back there if you want to help us buy gas. But, you know, no one is obligated to pay us anything. And that generosity was completely reciprocated. People night after night 
they'd buy us dinner, they'd give us money for gas, and the tour completely sustained itself in that sense. Now, I don't think that that's a valid business model. I don't think that you can do that all year round. At least, I don't think that that's a realistic expectation for showbread anyway. But for that time, it worked. Uh, I'd like to you know, try to find a way f- for free touring to be something that we can do more often. With showbread, it's not necessarily an ethical thing or a business model. It's just more like we really want to tell people something. And if we can move the price tag out of the way, then it's going to open up the door for more and more people to hear what it is that we have to say. And it's really as simple as that. Showbread released their new album, Cancer, on September 25th. And musically, that's got to be the most diverse album you've ever produced. The songs switch from your raw rock to piano ballad ska and everything in between. I mean, even sometimes during a single song. Were you really trying to stretch people a little bit with that idea too, just to run all these different musical aspects to a single album? I think we are trying to stretch ourselves more so. Like People have said that to us about like they're impressed or at the very least a tad surprised at the, the kind of schizophrenic genre hopping that we do sometimes in one single song and we were looking at like a lot of progressive rock bands like uh, rush and early genesis and things like that and being like well holy cow these dudes have like eight minute songs and they, it's like 15 different movements within one song but it, you know it's pretty mathematical and all over the place and really abstract so we were like what if we could do this within our formula and our context of kind of like catchy and energetic rock anthems that cover a, a lot of ground in a brief time Somehow we managed to do that. I'm, I'm kind of surprised with it myself. Cancer has been really getting some phenomenal reviews. All of the reviews that I've seen, it's like you're 5 out of 5 or 10 out of 10. And it does have a central theme, but do you want to describe what that is? Yeah, so Cancer is a, it's a concept record, and the story is about a fictional band called the Protozoa. And the leader of that band is a young man named Chemo story takes place in a near future version of america where america is kind of under the authority and under the rule of these otherworldly extraterrestrial however you want to say it beings called the principalities and this band rises up out of obscurity to lead a kind of revolt against the authorities that they feel like are oppressive or unjust you know, we're making a movie that goes with the record, and there's a pretty elaborate artwork that comes with the download from Come and Live that fleshes out the story. But the album actually lyrically functions a bit on a smaller scale. So in the lyrics, you're getting first-person narrative from Kimo, the uh, protagonist, and his kind of struggle with what he feels like is a bizarre marriage of church and state that he's seeing. And then as he begins to really rebel against that idea, he starts to experience this really difficult uh, inner turmoil of, is he, has he gone too far? Is he being, is he now being, you know, unloving to the people that he felt were being unloving to him? And, and it all culminates with, you know, what I think is like a really healthy realization for him at the end of the story, even though the story doesn't really end well for the protagonist in the physical sense. But, you know, it's a bit like anorexia nervosa in that there's a pretty complicated story, but this is not one that you have to read along with. It's, uh, it's played out in different media. It's played out in the artwork, visuals, and it's played out in the movie that comes out early next year. It was quite an undertaking in the same way. How much does cancer parallel today's uh, political and societal norms? 
Oh, well, it's a very thinly veiled metaphor. I, I don't think a, a, a whole lot of people are going to uh, be that suspicious about whether or not this is what we actually think, because it is, you know, totally based on our experience with highly politicized church in uh, America and the way that that's affecting the church around the world. Uh, you know, last year we toured in, I don't know, almost 10 different countries in the, the entire year and have seen like the marriage of church and state have a, a very strong effect on the way that Jesus followers are perceived here in America and perceived in different countries in Europe and in New Zealand and things like that. So it was an issue that we really wanted to speak to. We've kind of dabbled in it here and there on previous records, sometimes a little more upfront than others, but this was a, a chance to be really direct and be really outspoken about what we thought. And at the, at the very least, you know, a lot of people are going to assume that we're trying to shove this, you know, rebellious agenda down people's throats. But the idea was to generate conversation and to generate healthy debate and generate healthy questions and things like, not so much indoctrinate people into our way of thinking. Now, one of the song titles from Cancer is titled Anarchy. So can you tell us what your solution would be? Right, yeah. The song Anarchy takes place in the in the story when the protagonist Kimo has reached his like most frustrated and most rebellious phase. But lyrically, the song uh, was written early on, uh, and it was influenced by a lot of Christian anarchists, Tolstoy and Greg Boyd and Dorothy Day and Jockey Lou a lot, like different theologians who have mm -hmm. um, kind of came up with uh, this position that the Jesus followers' role is uh, first and foremost allegiance and obedience to Jesus, even at, you know, at expense to the allegiance to the state, if that means violating the state, accepting that Jesus and the New Testament authors also taught like submission uh, to the state, uh, nonviolence, non-resistance, that kind of thing. So I think when people hear a word as strong as anarchy, they think, you know, like V for Vendetta, they think, you know, this uh, revolt uprising with Molotov cocktails and fight the power, overthrow the government. But anarchism, uh, based on the teachings of, of Jesus, is really just about having an allegiance that's first and foremost and only to Jesus and not to the state. And that doesn't mean rebellion against the state. It doesn't mean uprising or revolt or any of those things. It just means that um, I have one king and that king is Jesus and it's not a president or an emperor or, or you know, an, a, a dictator or any of those things. The reason that we chose to use th that word on the record is really just because it's a really something of a conversation piece. It's such a strong word. It's such a like provocative imagery to say anarchy or to chant anarchy, we felt like it would be a way of drawing people into the conversation about, well, what is the solution? And in, the, in that song, uh, the narrator asked the question, are these kings the best that we can do or a necessary evil to ordering a mess? The record doesn't necessarily answer all the questions that it raises, but the important thing that we thought was to get people to talk about the questions, to actually ask the questions. I have a, a perception, I have a, an opinion and an idea, but I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong about those things. I just think that it's a conversation worth having. This is The Antidote. We're speaking with Josh Dice, frontman and lead vocalist of Showbread. Josh, this is probably the least veiled lyrically of any of your albums. Is that meaning that you're having a little bit more passion about your topic on this particular album? 
it's not necessarily that we're more passionate about this topic than other topics, but there there certainly is a lot of personal importance fueled into this thing. I guess if you want to be comparative, the there's songs on, if you go all the way back to the first record and you have a song like Mouth Like a Magazine or something, which is just about, in essence, about gossip versus, you know, a song like I'm Afraid That I'm Me on Cancer, which is, you know, about this struggle with Christianity's marriage to the state, then yes, it gets me a little more riled up to um, consider the topics in I'm Afraid That I'm Me versus Mouth Like a Magazine. That's not to say that we, we haven't been passionate until now. I just think that these topics at this time with this band, the things that we've been studying and experiencing, like hit pretty close to home and um, we're really uh, serious about, we're really passionate about. And that's obviously coming across, I think, in the songs. But I keep reminding people that it, it is a concept record. It is like a fictional story that takes place, you know, in a dystopian future with aliens and things like that. But um, that isn't to undermine uh, what it is that we're saying. We actually have a position that we're advocating and, you know, like theological distinctives that we're advocating in the songs. If it's anywhere from Showbread's cancer record to like C.S. Lewis with, the you know, Narnia or The Great Divorce or something like there is a certain level of uh, pension of disbelief or a certain level of artistic license that one has to grant uh, something like a sci-fi concept record and um, certainly dig deep in all the topics, scrutinize the words, ju- you know, like dis- use discernment. You don't have to believe everything we're saying or buy into everything, agree with us or any of those things. But treat them seriously and at the same time treat it like uh, a sci-fi concept record. It's a difficult line to toe. So how do listeners get a hold of a copy of that album? That record's available completely free from comeandlive.com. And if you download from Come and Live, you're going to get the entire album with the detailed artwork that goes along with fleshing out the story. Uh, If you feel like supporting us financially, um, then you can get the record from iTunes or Amazon or any of the other digital retailers that play the record. You can stream it for free on Spotify. Um, Any digital outlet is offering the record right now. Come and Live has it for free, and then early next year, there will be physical copies that have the movie as well. How would you define both the purpose and the future of Showbread? Well, the purpose of Showbread is maybe surprisingly, or by the grace of God, uh, the same that it was in the beginning, which is to tell people what it is that we believe about Jesus of Nazareth, and not the Americanized uh, you know, religious version of Jesus, or maybe not the churchy youth group version of Jesus that you grew up with, or um, not necessarily anyone's preconceived notions about Jesus, but the actual historical Jesus of Nazareth to tell people what it is that we think about him. That's the most important thing to us in the whole world, and that's why our band exists. And we exist to do that um, without bowing to the whims of expectations from listeners or the church or the Christian music industry or the secular music industry or any of those things. And that will continue to be the purpose of the band until the band ceases to exist, which, you know, I don't know when that will happen. But it's this broad and really generalized, maybe sometimes ambiguous vision of just having a band with a lot of open space. We can kind of do anything musically we want to do because we've we've set the stage with so many different genres and, you know, like no one will be surprised at this point if we do something really bizarrely different record to record. And no one will be surprised at this point if we say things that are really provocative. But, uh, you know, we want to generate conversation. We want to generate uh, debate. And we, you know, we don't want people to necessarily just 
take everything that we say as gospel fact. We want people to weigh the things that we say, test the things that we say, and think about other things that we say. And, you know, that's why our, our band exists, to provoke and to get people to ask questions. Uh, yeah, we, we want to be someone that's uh, something that's stimulating conversation, and we happen to want to stimulate conversation about Jesus. So that's why we're here, and that's what we're going to keep doing. And it's just taking you back to your old quote about how people want to get comfortable and stay comfortable, and you're going to shake them up. That's the idea, anyway. I hope that we can continue to do that. Josh Dies of Showbread, thanks for spending time with The Antidote, and I wish you and the band the best of success with cancer. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Maybe I should have said the album Cancer. Yeah, it does. It's making people, uh, it's making it really difficult for people to advocate for the record when they, you know, I just got cancer. (laughs) Thanks. Really appreciate it, Josh. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Dave. Good talking to you.